This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to PM. I'm Rachel Mealy, coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yagara people in Brisbane. Tonight, too far or not enough? The Reserve Bank Governor ruminates on his inflation-fighting rate hikes at a hearing in Canberra. Also, Australian health officials announce they're developing a long COVID strategy and one medical expert explains her own ordeal. In fact, I had to advocate very hard for doctors to follow the evidence. I understood, given this was a new problem, everyone was really an experiment. And in fact, the evidence was limited, but you did, it was there. You just needed to know where to look and who to ask. And US regulators recall hundreds of thousands of self-driving Teslas, but owners defend the safety of the top-selling electric vehicle. That car, is, it's saved me, I would say, dozens of times of doing silly things that it's actually corrected my actions. They're pushing the envelope in a regulatory sense, they're pushing the envelope in a technical sense. The fact that they call this their, their self-driving system uh, suggests it's actually more capable than it is. Amid criticism over record interest rate rises and cost of living pressures, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has again insisted that he's taking the right approach. The RBA Governor and his colleagues faced more questions in Canberra, reiterating that high inflation is damaging and corrosive to the economy. Philip Lowe says consecutive rate hikes have been necessary and there'll be more on the way. But a growing number of people are struggling to meet their mortgage repayments and risk default as rates rise further. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. After nine rate increases in a row, he's fully aware Australians don't want to hear it, but Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has repeated his warning that there will be more to come. The board expects that further increases will be needed over the months ahead to ensure that inflation returns to target and that this period of high inflation is only temporary. The RBA Governor appeared before the House of Representatives Economics Committee today for the second time this week. There is a risk that we've gone too far and um, don't need to do any more and uh, the economy will slow um, more than we expect but there's also a risk that we haven't done enough. When it comes to how borrowers are faring, RBA Assistant Governor Dr Brad Jones confirmed there are already a number of people in negative equity, which is when someone's mortgage debt is more than the value of their property. That's a problem if someone wants to resell or is forced to because they can't meet repayments. First of all, uh, just to take stock of where things stand today. So a very, very small proportion, less than half of 1%, of loans are in negative equity. When we run a stress scenario, if prices were to fall from this point, another 10%, uh, the share of loans that would be uh, in negative equity would be 1%. If house prices were to fall another 20%, uh, the share of loans that would be in negative equity would be around 4%. Dr Jones says there's a fair amount of resilience in the market, but there's a wide gap between those comfortably meeting repayments and those who are struggling. On one hand, you've got around half of variable rate owner occupiers who are more than one year ahead on their mortgage payments. In fact, about a third are more than two years ahead. At the other end of the distribution, we see, uh, observe around 10% of variable rate owner occupier borrowers who 
have got virtually no spare cash flow after they meet their mortgage payments and their living costs. Nikki Hartley is an independent economist. The Reserve has a job to do in fighting inflation, but they need to understand the equity consequences of what they do and they need to be working with governments to make sure those who are most disadvantaged have some help. She says while percentages of those in negative equity appear small, they represent a significant number of people who are struggling to pay their mortgage. Negative equity, if you can keep paying and keep your keep your mortgage going, that's okay. It's when you're forced to sell your home and we're facing rising unemployment, the numbers will go up over the course of the year or official forecasts say that. And if you're facing negative equity and you lose your job, that's when you start to get into trouble. And, you know, we're talking 1%, you're talking tens of thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of people here who are who are potentially affected. When asked about rising rent costs, Philip Lowe dismissed the suggestion that RBA interest rate hikes were directly to blame, instead pointing to housing shortages as the problem. Cassandra Goldie, the CEO of the Australian Council of Social Service, says there are a number of factors contributing to housing affordability, including supply and first homebuyer schemes. That's why uh, we say now is not the time for us to be doing more interest rate rises to deal with inflation. The big issues are tackling the causes of inflation. And that means we need to get on top of regulating rent increases um, to make sure that those kinds of housing options are more affordable. And we need to stop introducing policies that encourage people on lower and modest incomes into unaffordable mortgages, which means that they are really exposed when we see these kinds of interest rate rises. A review into the Reserve Bank is set to report to government next month. Bridget Fitzgerald reporting. Long COVID sufferers have repeatedly spoken about how their lives have been drastically impacted by the lingering symptoms. They also speak of a struggle to be diagnosed and treated. The challenges those patients face have been discussed today at a parliamentary inquiry looking into the impacts of long COVID, with stories emerging about people not being believed or having to wait for months to be seen. The Chief Medical Officer has confirmed that a national strategy is being developed to help sufferers access treatment. Isabel Masali reports. Like most long COVID sufferers, Sue Murphy speaks with sorrow as she remembers her life pre-COVID. Well, I used to be quite a fit person who worked 12-hour shifts, who also was very active. Um, We'd go bushwalking and um, doing different activities on the weekend before COVID. Actually, we trekked the Carnarvon Gorge not long before But for more than a year, the former disability support worker has been so sick she hasn't been able to work, from heart issues to breathing issues and chronic fatigue. Couldn't walk up and down a flight of stairs in her own house. Um, Has not returned to work, so financially disabled, not being able to return to work. Um, Socially isolated, very um, emotionally disadvantaged. Few, quite a few hospitalisations, ongoing um, tests and visits to the hospital. Sue Murphy also speaks of the difficulty in getting treatment. And today, stories like hers just kept coming at the parliamentary inquiry into long COVID and repeated COVID infections. Nada Hamad is a haematologist and associate professor at the University of New South Wales. 
She struggled herself since COVID infections in 2021. She told the hearing in Canberra she felt her own concerns about long COVID were being dismissed, describing her experience as a failure of the system. In fact, I had to advocate very hard for doctors to follow the evidence. I was repeatedly not heard and dismissed. My story would in fact be repeated back to me or relayed back to me incorrectly, which I found really astonishing as a doctor. The fact was the doctors didn't have the knowledge, the diagnostic tools or the treatment strategies at hand and were not working on an evidence-based paradigm. I understood given this was a new problem, everyone was really an experiment. And in fact, the evidence was limited, but you did, it was there. You just needed to know where to look and who to ask. The committee also heard evidence about the rise in mental health issues for long COVID sufferers. Concerns Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at a higher risk and questions over whether Australia is doing enough to boost awareness of COVID booster shots, which can help prevent long COVID. But among the list of issues and challenges posed by this condition, there was some optimism. Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly confirmed a federal strategy is being developed, though it may be a while away. So, so actually, not to be too sort of pointed, but it depends very much on your timeline, um, because I, I think to develop such a strategy whilst this committee is continuing to meet and to deliberate uh, uh, is, is fine, but to finalise it, we can't do that until uh, until we receive your, your advice. Professor Kelly and Deputy Chief Medical Officer Professor Michael Kidd went on to highlight a lack of national data being collected from people who present with long COVID symptoms and said they hope to refine a definition of the condition. Having a clear definition that can be useful um, okay. to, 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 to diagnose long COVID. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ones we're using at the moment, the WHO definition, the, the NICE definition, NICE definition from the UK, um, they're great for research purposes because they're so broad. Um, but in terms of trying to actually understand this thing, we, we have to get beyond it. And if no one else is going to do it, then we should do it here. When asked about how employers are dealing with the issue, they responded that so much of this is anecdote at the moment. It's quite clear that there, there is, you know, the people that are, are, are really suffering from this longer, particularly fatigue. But are we hearing anything across the board, any systematic kind of uh, increase in, um, uh, in absenteeism, for example? No. Uh, that's, that doesn't appear to be the case, but, um, but certainly it's, it is definitely something we need to take into account. It's not only a health issue, uh, it could become much broader for society. The inquiry continues with a hearing in Melbourne next week. Isabel Masali reporting. This is PM, I'm Rachel Mealy. Ahead, women in regional Tasmania demand change after traumatic birth experiences. We were just both in shock um, and disbelief. I think we couldn't understand why this was happening. Absolutely traumatic. I would not wish what I went through upon anyone in this. Anyone at all. At least eight people have died and about 10,000 have been forced from their homes in New Zealand after Cyclone Gabrielle brought flooding rain to parts of the North Island. Many communities remain cut off with no power and no communications after the storm that hit the northern parts of the island on Sunday before the wild weather made its way down the country's coast. Our reporter Kathleen Calderwood is in New Zealand. 
Well, Rachel, I spent the day out at Piha Beach, which is in West Auckland, an absolutely beautiful part of the world, but it's just been torn apart from the cyclone. There are landslips everywhere, dozens of homes that have been evacuated, people still not able to go home in some instances, and some low-lying parts of the area still have floodwaters gathering as well. So there's still a lot of work to do there. They have actually created a makeshift sort of community evacuation evacuation centre at the local surf club where people can go if they, there are some people sleeping there, but also if they just need power or, you know, food, that kind of thing. So they're offering meals all the time. So a really amazing show of community spirit. But we happened actually to come across a, a couple, actually an Australian couple who've been living here in New Zealand for about seven years. Uh, as they were re-entering their street this morning, basically they have had a horrific week. On Monday, they self-evacuated after one of their neighbours' homes was torn down the hill in a landslip and actually flipped over upside down onto the road. And thankfully, no one was inside it. Uh, But then they were evacuated again by the local authorities on Wednesday. So we walked into their neighbourhood with them as they went to check on their home for the first time. So here's Nick Hibbins and Belinda Lush. We can see our house is fine, but we've been evacuated because they're worried that that will fall. Mm. So we're in this middle ground now where we're apparently not supposed to go back to our house, but then they're saying it's fine to use. (laughs) So (laughs) obviously sleeping here when it's raining would be pretty unnerving at the moment. So I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. Relieved, relieved. But um, it'd be nice to have power back on and (laughs) be told that this um, slip is safe. Sleeping is not easy when you've got this half a mountain kind of looming above your house any more rain it might come down i mean we've been here a few years but there's people that have lived here their whole lives and for a lot of people it's really questioning for them what's the long-term proposition for this these communities these beachside communities that all have the same kind of land issues to see it happen not not just one but like just repeatedly across the whole coastline it challenges the the dream, doesn't it? Like everyone wants to live on the beach, but apparently it's not the uh, safest place. Australians Nick and Belinda speaking there at Pihar Beach. Kathleen, what is the scale of the government response so far across the North Island, and and when will all those communities that have been cut off receive help? Well, look, it's huge, Rachel, and particularly focused around the Hawke's Bay area, which is on uh, the eastern coast of the North Island because they have been absolutely decimated by the cyclone there. The Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, actually spent the day visiting that area and he's addressed the media. He um, is saying there's work underway to get power back into Napier. The entire city of Napier is without power at the moment. He said that will continue throughout the night. Overall, there's 62,000 homes without power at the moment. There's also urgent work underway in Gisborne to restore a safe water supply. So even their hospital is operating at the moment with limited water supply. There are medical supplies being airlifted into areas of need. And we also heard that there is a group of Australian disaster experts that have arrived in New Zealand this afternoon to help with the recovery effort. Air Commodore Darren Webb from the New Zealand Defence Force said that the New Zealand Army has established HQ in Napier as well to assist with that effort but they have also the defense force has also asked for help from australia he said they haven't finalized the details but they do anticipate that there'll be additional support staff and aircraft arriving from australia early next week
Kathleen Calderwood reporting from the Auckland region in New Zealand. After days of criticism of his administration over the Chinese spy balloon saga, Joe Biden has spoken at length about the reasons for shooting down flying objects over North American airspace. And the president has admitted all but the first to be shot down have been civilian balloons doing nothing to compromise US safety or security. But that still leaves the Chinese balloon shot down in the first place, something that remains a cause for tension between China and the West. Nick Grimm reports. It's a likely enough story. A small group of US enthusiasts known as the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade is missing one of its inflatables, last seen a week ago off the west coast of Alaska, in the same general area that a US Air Force F-22 shot down a mysterious flying object. That's just too big a coincidence for US media outlets like Fox News, which broadcasts this rampage against Joe Biden. Now, the Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade's balloon costs $12. So Joe shot a $12 balloon with a half a million dollar missile. The United States will not rest until every father-son balloon hobbyist has their $12 helium balloon violently removed from northern American airspace. And after conservatives have spent days condemning the White House for a lack of transparency, the US president spoke at length about the episode, acknowledging that three of the four objects shot down posed no threat to US security. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. In fact, there's growing evidence those objects are what's known as Pico balloons, used by the amateur radio community to relay ham radio signals. Dr Malcolm Davis is a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. So uh, it looks to be like these three UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, were in fact these sort of small balloons that have been privately launched. They're not uh, military reconnaissance platforms. They're certainly not operated by a foreign state. And I think that probably the US did the right thing in shooting them down in an abundance of caution given the altitude that they were flying at. But I think it also points to the fact that the US government needs to have much better awareness of what is flying in their skies than they do at the moment. It also leaves the sensitive matter of the first balloon that traversed US airspace, with little doubt remaining about where it originated. CBS News has just learned that US intelligence watched the high-flying airship as it lifted off near China's south coast. Former CIA director in the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo, telling Fox News that balloons can provide intelligence data not available from satellites. And a low-flying balloon over our military installations is a significant, not an insignificant event in the United States of America. And as Republicans urge the White House to take a harder line, Joe Biden has said he wants to avert a cold war between the two superpowers, pursuing a diplomatic resolution by seeking to speak directly to Chinese President Xi Jinping, about what Beijing has insisted was just a weather balloon. But it comes amid warnings against attempting to appease an increasingly assertive China, including from former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Excerpts of his speech in Tokyo 
provided to media outlets, including this. The benign and accommodating view of China has proved to be arguably the most misplaced assumption in international relations since Neville Chamberlain proclaimed peace in our time on his return from Munich in 1938. Malcolm Davis again. There are some real parallels between now and the 1930s, and that's what he's talking about, is protecting this existing rules-based international order that has served us so well since the end of the Second World War. Dr Malcolm Davis is from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Nick Grimm was reporting there. Women in northwest Tasmania are joining calls for better access to maternity services in regional areas following concerns raised by Queensland residents earlier this week. Some Tasmanian women have been forced to make long trips to the state's capital to give birth, and others say their experiences resulted in ongoing health issues. Doctors are calling for an immediate intervention. Alexandra Humphreys reports. Shortly after Christmas, Rebecca Graves' waters broke. When contractions didn't start, she expected to be induced at her local hospital, a 10-minute drive from her home near Burnie in Tasmania's northwest. They advised me, uh, I think about 10 o'clock like later in the evening, that there were, the labour ward was full um, and there was no midwives available, not enough staff on to assist. The situation didn't improve overnight. Rebecca Graves' obstetrician told her there was no way she could give birth in Burnie. She had tried Launceston Hospital and they were full as well and she said the only option is for you to go to Hobart. Hobart's a four and a half hour journey away. Ms Grave and her husband made the trip alone. She was scared and emotional. We were just both in shock um, and disbelief. I think we couldn't understand why this was happening. Their first child, daughter Stella, was born on New Year's Eve. The Northwest Private Hospital in Burnie births all public and private patients in the state's northwest under a contract with the Tasmanian government. Amy McLaughlin was diagnosed with PTSD following the birth of her daughter at the hospital 10 months ago. Absolutely traumatic. I would not wish what I went through upon anyone in this. Anyone. Ms McLaughlin had an induction started and then stopped due to staff shortages. She says it left her unable to access pain relief. Wasn't getting listened to was the main one. Like I was pushing for eight hours um, and I kept saying to the midwife something's wrong. The next day a different midwife realised baby Macy was stuck and she was taken to theatre. That's caused a damaged nerve in her shoulder that's now being treated by a paediatrician. And I felt it all. I felt them pull her out. Um, I felt them cut me. It's had a lasting impact. Um, I have been diagnosed with PTSD from her birth experience. The hospital says it's safe for inductions to be started and then stopped and patients are always assessed before being sent home. It won't comment on individual cases but says patients are able to make complaints if they're unhappy with the care provided. Dr Annette Barrett is Vice President of the Tasmanian branch of the Australian Medical Association. We're concerned that there's not sufficient doctors, um, both specialists, and we're concerned that there are not sufficient midwives and nurses to manage the service on a fully functioning, fully effective um, method. And are there safety concerns for the women who do need to give birth? 
On the times when it's on bypass, yes. Um, most women are in labour for an extended period of time, but on some occasions that's not the case. So you may arrive at the hospital where you're expecting to get birth in advanced labour to find that there are no midwives and no vacant labour suites. She says pregnant people should discuss alternative birthing plans with their doctors in case the hospital cannot admit them. The Tasmanian government has committed to taking back control of maternity services in the northwest by November 2024 and says if there are changes that can be brought forward safely, it will do so. What we're calling for is for that to be brought forward to now. Earlier this week, the ABC reported on the lack of maternity services in Gladstone, Queensland. Expectant parents there are being forced to travel to hospitals at least an hour away. Dr Barrett says there are growing issues with access to maternity services in regional areas across the country. It's a major problem. People don't want to work regionally. And we know we've got a severe shortage of midwives all around the country. And we also have a very severe shortage of obstetricians and gynaecologists outside the urban metropolitan areas. That's Dr Annette Barrett from the Australian Medical Association, Tasmania, Alexandra Humphreys and Monika Champ reporting. Electric car maker Tesla has been forced to recall more than 350,000 cars in the US over safety concerns with the vehicle's self-driving systems. US regulators say cars on autopilot are misbehaving around intersections and not always following speed limits. So is this a major setback for the manufacturer or just another speed bump on the road to domination of the automotive industry? Oliver Gordon's been trying to find out. At a charging station on Los Angeles' Sunset Boulevard, Tesla drivers learn their cars are subject to a recall. 61-year-old Jerome isn't overly surprised. Around construction, it's not good. You know, if it's a, a pretty standard road, it's actually very good. But you get into a situation where it's a little bit um, not as uh, refined where you're driving, it's not great. Neither is 29-year-old Kevin. Uh, it's not surprising, just something that's probably more safe until it's completely secure and, and safe to get on the road. 54-year-old Maria is disappointed, but says this is the price of progress. Obviously, when you're innovating, there's going to be hits and misses, and you're going to go back to the shop to try to improve things. So all in all, it's probably a good idea and they'll just do another iteration and it'll continue to get better and better. The recall, part of a larger investigation by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration into Tesla's automated driving systems, is the most serious action taken yet against the electric vehicle maker. As well as inconveniencing drivers, it raises questions about Chief Executive Elon Musk's claims that self-driving cars equipped with the company's full self-driving technology are safer than humans. The recall is unlikely to impact Tesla drivers in Australia, as the autopilot software available here is not as advanced. There are some owners going mostly hands-free in Australia, though. Central Australian Tesla driver Hunter Murray regularly cruises down the Stewart Highway at 110 kilometres per hour on autopilot. Look for kangaroos, look for wildlife that could be an issue, you know, we're not distracted by looking down all the time. Some US cars, uh, Teslas, have been recalled because the self-driving system, in the words of the regulator, is misbehaving around intersections and doesn't cool. always follow the speed limits. D does that make you nervous? 
Not at all. I mean, I haven't noticed. Uh, okay, so it uses a visual aid to to look for speed limits as well as Google Maps. But if that map data is wrong, that's when we can get some um, misinformation. But look, that can happen with a driver as well. A driver's missed a speed sign, and they've they've all of a sudden they're doing eighty in the sixty zone. You know, that can happen with humans quite easily. Today's Tesla recall has been widely publicised. So of a string of incidents in the US that saw self-driving Teslas veering off the road and smashing into inanimate objects. Hunter Murray hopes that coverage doesn't overshadow the safety benefits he's experienced using versions of the technology. That car, is, it saved me, I would say, dozens of times of doing silly things that it's actually corrected my actions and, and saved me from an accident or a bingle or you know, even, even worse. Most experts agree that when automated systems are more widely integrated, the roads will be safer. But as chief scientist at UNSW's AI Institute, Professor Toby Walsh points out, we're currently stuck in a middle ground. Well, the real challenge is that the difficult period is the period of change. When we've got a mixture of self-driving and human-driven cars, once there are only self-driving cars, they'll talk to each other um, and the accident rate will plummet. Most accidents, 95% of accidents are caused by the human driver. It's us uh, overconfidence, driving when we're tired, driving when we're texting, driving when we're drunk. All the things, the mistakes that we make will stop accidents happening. He thinks Tesla needs to take a breather. They're pushing the envelope in a regulatory sense. They're pushing the envelope in a technical sense. The fact that they call this the, their self-driving system uh, suggests it's actually more capable than it is. We have to move forward a little more cautiously than Tesla is going. The professor's been impressed by the company's developments, but for now, we'll be keeping his hands on the steering wheel. I'd be happy to buy a Tesla car because I'd like to have a nice electric car, but I would never turn the self-driving on, certainly not in its current form. AI expert Professor Toby Walsh ending Oliver Gordon's report. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Scott Johnston and Nick Dan. I'm Rachel Mealy. The PM team with David Lipson will be back on Monday evening and join David on radio tomorrow morning for this week with interviews on the economy and interest rates, flying objects in North America and a new fight on climate policy. Thanks for your company this week. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.